Well, if you have investments, including retirement plans, the last three weeks have been rather awful. Even with this past Friday's rebound, the S&P 500 is down about 20% over three weeks ago. So if you need that money right now, you've got a real problem. However, the point of investments, as all kinds of financial advisors are saying in recent days, is that you need to play the long game. Ongoing investment over a long period of time tends to yield very positive results. So they would say, don't look at the moment. Look at the trend. Don't measure anything until it matures, which, come to think of it, is a lot like raising children. Here at Grace, we're at the end of our 10 weeks in our sermon series on marriage and family. Heaven, help the home. We spent the last eight weeks or so looking at marriage, including a week there looking at singleness as a high and holy calling from God. We spent another week in that section on marriage looking at the disillusion of many marriages. Along the way, we've referred to children, but last week and this week in our final week, we're discussing what those offspring are like, what the opportunities we have because of the relational union of marriage. As an aside, at the conclusion of this series, we're going to be beginning next week a short series leading up to Easter called Paradox, Ironies of the Cross. We're going to look at ways in which the cross was massively understood by people in Jesus' day and still in our day and the significance of what God was actually doing. Our text will be Matthew chapter 27, and you can prepare in advance for that series. I look forward to it. As we said last week, the testimony from all of Scripture is that children are a great blessing from God. Children are the result, uh, uh, the fruit of God's command to us, to humanity, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Children are the direct result of our obedience to his commission to us. And a response to his blessing to see our families expand. The Bible is clear. Psalm chapter 127, verses 3 to 5. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Last week we took some time to discover, to examine what it means to cultivate the soil of a child's heart. We talked about the importance of stability and of boundaries, of unconditional love, and, and yes, of discipline of the children God gives us. We looked at the responsibilities of parents to step up and to step out in the raising of their children. Parents who function as beneficial authorities in the lives of those children. And also who teach those children the joy of obedience. This honors God. This week, we continue in our parenting emphasis by building on this question. What does it mean to sow gospel seed in the lives of children? gospel seed that not only teaches them about their need for a savior, but about the privilege of walking with their Lord once he saves them. It helps children to understand their need, their need for God, their need for his provision, their need to respond to him, not just in the moment, but for a lifetime. 
The power, of course, isn't in their efforts or persistence, just like it isn't in us. The power is from God. The power is God's to take that seed and to cause it to germinate, and and his spirit to cause it to grow and to bear fruit in them and in us. Last week, you might remember, we looked at some verses in Ephesians and Colossians, two letters that Paul wrote, where he commanded that children should obey their parents because this is right, especially if they know Jesus Christ. You might remember that fathers in particular are admonished not to embitter or to exasperate their children, for this would cause them harm. But at the very end of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, we read this small little phrase that is packed with power for our lives. Rather, fathers, parents should bring children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Many of our translations, perhaps, that you're used to speak of the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Rarely have so few words been said about so many people and said so much, especially to children who know Jesus Christ. Many of you are included in that number, and many of your children are precious not only to you, but they're to God, whatever their age. And I hope that you and we always treat them as such. So it begs the question, what does it mean to bring up children in the training and instruction or the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And and what does that especially mean for children in our day, in the kind of times that we live in? At one level, a foundational level, parenting really hasn't changed much at all. We're going to see that today. But you and I both know that the environment that we parent in has changed. That's just the way history works. We're always called to raise up a new generation to parent children in a new environment, in a new set of circumstances, yet always in dependence upon God. So let's begin with our conclusion, which is well stated by one of the New Testament scholars of our day, Peter O'Brien. He writes, ultimately, the concern of parents is not simply that their sons and daughters will be obedient to their authority, but that through this godly training and admonition, their children will come to know and obey the Lord himself. The original word for training or nurture in some of your Bibles or instruction, admonition in those translations, they're instructive. Training is the broad idea of being molded or shaped into a well-rounded person, embracing what is good and beautiful. Of course, Paul adds of the Lord or in the Lord, which means that which is beautiful or good in the sight of God. Parents, especially fathers, are to guide their children to this very end. Instruction, the second word in that pair, has a bit more nuance. The focus is on the verbal teaching or instruction to children, the things that we say to urge them or to warn them. In many ways, this has to do with the moral training, the the priority of values that we're instructing our children to embrace. We are their examples, that's for sure, but we're also their instructors as they seek to understand life. For many of us, when we think about raising children, our mind immediately goes to that famous proverb, Proverbs 22, verse 6. In the NIV 2011 translation, it reads, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. The ESV and many of our more traditional translations say it like this, train up a a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, 
he will not depart from it. Both of those are valuable. Train up helps us understand the the instructive nature of parenting. We have to speak, we have to explain our values and our priorities and our deepest convictions to the next generation, to our children. Children, as we all see and know, are wonderful at imitating. But the best kind of imitation is that which is understood. We've heard often that more is caught than taught in life. But we still need to teach. The NIV start children off gives this idea that that raising children is a very dynamic, very changing kind of task. It, It occurs, but for a limited time, a fleeting time in the course of all of life. Many of us have had the experience in life of teaching a child how to ride a bike. And it's a fascinating experience and sometimes rather painstaking, not just for the parent, but especially for the child. Do you know what the hardest part of training a child to ride a bike is? It's being willing to let go. The bike, of course, is a given. The early sprints for mom or dad or someone else are exhausting. When children get skinned knees, it's traumatic. The weebling and wobbling is terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. But the hardest part in training a child is actually for the parent. It's being willing to let go. Why? Because it's only then that you can see if your training, if your coaching, if your warnings, if your cheering have paid off. As long as you hold on, you really can't see the fruit of your labors with that child. And your child won't see what they're capable of when mom and dad begin to take their hands off. Letting go, unlike a bike, is a slow process. I once heard someone say that parenting is a lot like holding a bar of soap. If you hold it too loose, it will fall right out of your hand. But if you squeeze it too tight, it will shoot far away from you. How true. And the challenge becomes greater, the bigger the object. Later in this proverb, we read that this kind of good parenting results in children who will not turn, who will not depart from the way. And that's the challenge. Because when you and I read that, it sounds to us very much like a guarantee. Good parenting in, godly children out, right? Oh, how much I would love for that to be true. And so would you. But life and experience tell us plainly that that is not the case. That there's no guarantee that good parenting will result in godly children. There are all kinds of parents who have done their very best. And at least to outside observers have parented in noble fashion. And yet their young adult children end up not embracing their values or even their faith. Some of them, in fact, reject outright any belief in Jesus Christ. A few of them become agnostic or even atheistic. Many of them pursue lifestyles or patterns that go very much against what God writes in the Bible. So what do we do with that? Is this proverb here, Proverbs 22.6, wrong? Well, in a word, 
No. We need to remember a few vital realities. First, this is a proverb. This is how life is designed to work. That's what a proverb is. This is a truism. This is a generalization. The Germans would call it a verallgemeinerung. That means it typically holds true. Well-raised children by godly parents tend to result in healthy, socially capable, spiritually sensitive children as adults. But not always. Because this is a proverb, not a promise. There's no guarantee. There's no expected result. That's why on the flip side, some children turn out remarkably well, even in spite of very imperfect parents or an imperfect family situation. A pastor, when I was in my 20s, often said to me, Mike, remember, parents whose children turn out poorly tend to take too much of the blame. And parents whose children turn out well tend to take too much of the credit. How true. Children are not widgets that we produce on an assembly line. Children come to us with their own hearts, their own built-in wirings. And children are also living under the sovereignty of a holy and a gracious God. That means that children come with variables beyond our control. Having said that, we are still as people, as parents especially, susceptible to certain conclusions that may not be helpful. Here are several. One, that parenting doesn't matter. A child's heart and life is what it is, we might say. We don't have much control at all over his or her future. The book of Proverbs would push back on that. The whole Bible actually would. Parenting matters enormously before God and, and also for that child's future. So we as parents should never resign ourselves to fate. A second unhelpful conclusion is that a wayward child now is a wayward child always. Many parents are tempted to believe this. They look at their child, whether he or she is age 17 or 22 or 30 or 42, and they see this child walking a bad path socially, morally, spiritually. But the grace of God and the power of God should never be discounted on children, even as adults. A third unhelpful conclusion is this, that I can control the heart of my child. Many parents grab onto this, especially in the younger years. I find it interesting by observation that parenting expertise tends to decline with the passage of time. You realize what you don't know. You realize what you can't control. Pre-parents are very idealistic. Parents of dependent children become overwhelmed with the passage of time. Parents of adult children are often either relieved or very proud or very cynical. But all of us, whatever our stage of life, need to remember the power of God. For it's only God who can change hearts, change lives to make new. The Bible teaches that adult children are supposed to honor and care for their own parents especially believing children, those who follow Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4 says this, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should first learn to put, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. 
In other words, children should care for the needs of their parents. In this context, widows are in view, but parents in general should be as well. The principle holds. And we live in a culture now that tends to push parents, push people who are getting older off to the side. So this is a strong warning to those of us who are children, especially adult children, to care for our parents. In fact, a few verses later in that same passage, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The context again here is younger adult children caring for older parents and relatives. We can say in the church of Jesus Christ, the application is even broader than that, that we are to care for those who are older brothers and sisters in the family of God. And in these very days that we're living in right now, we have multiplied opportunities to practice this. There are many, many older people for whom a visit or a card or a call or a gift or some financial help would be a great blessing. Isolation, a a feeling of insignificance, is often around the corner for many of them. Do you have some people that might come to mind? Parents or relatives, neighbors that you live by, people that our church can recommend to you? These are the times in which we can step up, we can step out as followers of Jesus Christ. And my appeal to all of us is let's do that in these days, church. A special word to the parents of those adult children is probably warranted. Admitted that's coming from someone whose oldest child is not yet 21. So I have zero experience in this. But I've heard and talked to a lot of people who have. When you have children who share your faith and your values, life becomes exponentially more enjoyable. But but many parents don't have that experience. And few pains are as deep as seeing adult children that you've raised reject the path that you've shown or the beliefs that you have. I once heard that every parent is doing as well as their child who is struggling the most. Regarding children that you might consider wayward, I would offer this. First, do everything you can to show those adult children respect and to keep communication lines open with them. A lot of rebukes, a lot of I told you so language is likely to push them away. Second, don't treat them as as if they're still your dependents. They may be your children, but they're adults. As much as you can, speak with them, not down to them. Three, avoid talking them down to all of your friends. They're likely to hear about it, and you will lose. Instead, number four, pray. What what you can't change and what they can't see, God can. Never underestimate the power of God. This reminds all of us that one day our children will be independent. They'll be in a place in which parents can no longer make decisions for them. So what is your plan for that day when it comes? If we put it in very concrete terms, what do I want from my child when he or she is 25 years old? Have you ever thought about that question? 
What, what, are, what are the values and the priorities and the commitments and the patterns that you want for your child when he or she grows up? It's a question that's easy to overlook, a question easy to avoid. Paul Tripp, a noted Christian author on the subject of parenting, writes, in the middle of all the endless parenting activities, many parents get lost. They're doing lots of good things, but they don't know why. They don't seem to have any overarching vision that holds them all together with meaning and purpose. And yet it's that question, what do I want them to be? What does God want them to be? that never seems to evaporate and remains so important. Here's the truth. We can't control our children, and we certainly can't control all the circumstances in their lives, present or future. We may think we can in early years, but that inevitably changes as children get older. We might be those helicopter parents who are seeking to create this hermetically sealed environment for our children or the so-called lawnmower or snowplow parents who seek to remove all the obstacles in a child's path as the child comes behind. But their growth and the reality of life show that that kind of mentality, that kind of pattern cannot be sustained. Letitia and I have observed that in our 20 plus years of parenting. It's been 13 years now since we brought a child into this world. And I can assure you that the temptation to protect our kids from all kinds of pain is there. But it's also suffocating for the child. Our motives might be good. Our, our mentality, though, is not. We live in a day and age in which we hear constant stories of neglect and abuse and, and bullying and, and isolation. And so we as parents work overtime it seems that we're willing to do everything to keep our kids physically safe, but too often almost nothing to keep or make them spiritually safe and healthy. The question is, should that characterize Christian parents, those who follow Jesus Christ? Some of the best parenting input that I've heard, and, and I believe this is consistent with the timeless truth that's taught in Proverbs 22.6 is this, prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child. See, it's not our role to create the circumstances for our child's life. We can't do that. We learn that as children age, as they become teenagers, as they move into young adulthood. Instead, our role is to shape them with, with values and character and to point them to the only one who can give them a new heart, and that's God himself. We, we are moral exemplars for our children, but God is the only heart surgeon. God is the only one who can give our son or daughter a new heart. In one of the more profound statements on parenting, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, the following. But as for you, Paul writing to Timothy, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's an older man writing one of his last letters. Timothy's a young man, a church leader, a pastor. Paul is his spiritual mentor. And Paul's leaving Timothy with some final words, with some last thoughts on what it means to follow God and to lead others. 
And here Paul is taking time to paint a picture of contrast between that which Timothy experienced and that which most of the people around him did. Paul speaks specifically about the formative years in Timothy's life, including formative years even from infancy. Earlier in this same letter, 2 Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, and their faith that he's convinced now lives in Timothy as well. And in chapter 3, Paul points to this for Timothy's life. He points to their lives and says, look at them and follow them. They have given Timothy not just instruction with their lips, but demonstration with their life. They weren't just talkers, nor were they silent examples. From his very infancy, they poured into, they invested in Timothy in his young life. And the same thing can be true in our homes and in our church. Note there what Paul highlights as the means and the result of this kind of parenting. Paul calls out the presence and the power of the scriptures in Timothy's life. These mentors, including his mother and his grandmother, taught Timothy the Bible. That was the pattern of their life, not just a token thing that they threw his way. And the result wasn't just a nice little boy or a courteous young man. The result in the providence and sovereignty of God was a changed man. Timothy had a a Greek father and a Jewish mother, yet Timothy became wise for salvation. His spiritual mentors invested in him. And they reaped a great return. Timothy was given abundant eternal life in Jesus. And now Timothy was living his entire life as a thanks offering back to the one who offered him salvation. For you Christian parents, this is precisely what you and I ought to desire and strive for with our children. Many people in our day think of parenting as this kind of neutral attempt at letting our children choose everything, but that's neither wise nor true. It is true that children will make choices, but no good parent is neutral about what they choose. Every parent indoctrinates their children. The only question is, which doctrine? What are you investing in, sowing in your children? In recent years, uh, LifeWay Research, which is a research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, did some extensive study on this particular question. What parenting practices are common in the families where young adults remained in the faith? They they surveyed over 2,000 adults who had children between the ages of 18 and 30 and were walking with the Lord, who embraced Christian faith. Here's what they found as the top factors for such young adult children following Jesus. Number one, Bible reading. The Bible was read to them and they read the Bible often growing up. That shouldn't surprise us. Number two, prayer. Prayer in all kinds of ways, all kinds of times, all kinds of situations and locations. Prayer was part of their life. Number three, service in church. Notice that it doesn't say just being in church, though that itself is important, but serving, especially alongside of parents in the church setting. They saw what it meant to give to others who belong to the same family. And fourth, fascinating, 
listening to Christian music. Why? Because it had a way of reinforcing the faith, the values, the beliefs. Ask the vast majority of believing parents who have experienced the new birth, who are saved in Jesus Christ, what their greatest desire for their children is. And you will inevitably find them saying something like John said in his third epistle. The fourth verse reads, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let the world chase after nice children. Let the world chase after courteous young adults, successful young people. What followers of Jesus should desire is nothing less than those who are their offspring, whose hearts and lives are sold out to God. Recently, I heard someone say that perhaps the opposite of that verse is also true, that there is no greater pain than to hear that my children are not walking in the truth. And if that's true, then we ought to pray, pray incessantly, live lives of purpose, especially in the patterns that we know are most likely to bear lasting fruit. Whatever the age of our children, that we would live in front of them in the now in ways that honor God. That research may be true and persuasive, but nothing is as authoritative as the scriptures. And that's where we want to land today in our passion to be godly parents and grandparents and mentors to the next generation. Deuteronomy chapter 6 Deep in the Old Testament, God speaks to Moses and to the people. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, we read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This summarizes God's command to, to parents and to extended family and to the community of God's people at large. You don't have to be a Bible scholar here. You don't have to know how to diagram Hebrew to understand the point of what God is wanting to say to us. It's simple. Parents, in everything you do, in every place you are, in all times that you live, point your children to the person and to the nature of God. Teach your children who God is. And then show them what it means to be the kind of person who responds to him in appropriate ways, in ways that show love. To love God means to be tenacious and persistent and passionate and life-encompassing. Loving God, responding to God, is not just an aspect or a piece of my life. It is my life. It shows my heart. And our kids must see that in our lives. As Pastor Dave Nicodemus from our own church said, be the follower of Jesus that you want your children to be. Who's our focus? Well, it's the next generation, our children. Where, where are we to do this? On the road, at home, at bedtime, at dawn. How do we do this? We do this through speech and through life and through symbols and in what we write. We do this in our living rooms where we converse with our children, not just follow the screens and the devices. We do this as we interact with our children in the car 
not just stare out the window. We do this as we teach them and practice before them what it means to be a prayerful follower of Jesus. We do this when the day begins and when the day ends as we pray with them and for them. Those times at the beginning and end of a day are important. We realized this when we were young and we almost always spent time with our children. We've caught ourselves tending to neglect that in recent months or even years with teenage children. But to our shame, starting and finishing days with our children to help them process and understand life is important. Pastor Dave, in that conversation a few days ago, said that for many who have teenage children, it's tempting as parents to just give up, to think that we no longer have influence. And yet those very years are some of the most formative as we seek to guide our children in what it means to respond to God. In other words, it's never over that we teach and live and show the next generation who he is. Moses couldn't be more obvious or profound than here. Spiritual parenting is the call of our whole lives before our children. Moses knew, like Paul, that we're not capable of changing a child's heart. Only God can do that. But we can shape and discipline them to see who God is and to call them to respond to God in the right ways. And we pray that at some point God gives them a new heart. And we pray that God would do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine in them. That's God's work. Our directive is to obey God and what he's called us to do here. That we would instill in young hearts a responsiveness to what God has called them to do. Pastor John Piper in our day said something like this, and I paraphrase, I can't guarantee that your children will turn out well if you follow the commands of Deuteronomy 6. But I can guarantee that your children won't turn out well if you neglect this. In other words, it pays to follow God's plan, both spiritually and practically. It's worth highlighting here in Deuteronomy 6 that Though these commands are easily applicable to parents, they're not only for parents, they're really for the community of God's people. The people of Israel were the focus back. Then the church of Jesus Christ, including local churches today, are our focus. And that means that all of us have a role to play as we mentor and shape this next generation. Yes, parents have a role to play. The nuclear family has a role to play. But the local church is not incidental The local church is meant to be the extended spiritual family that comes alongside of nuclear families and biological parents in bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We matter as we invest in young lives. Certainly we don't own the children. We're stewards. We're ambassadors, not owners. They belong to God. They're on loan to us, not just as physical parents, but as a local church, as the family of God. That's why here at Grace we have gatherings for all kinds of ages. That's why we have parent dedications here at Grace that include the whole family. That's why we urge you to mentor young parents. For those of you with experience, get involved in their lives, get involved in their settings. You have experience and you have influence. Many times young parents don't know what they don't know. 
If you're a young parent, ask for input. Seek out mentors who can help you as you parent them. Those who have experience often have grace and wisdom as well. All of our children will end up in school someday, and all of those schooling options have benefits and challenges. That's true of public school, private school, Christian school, and homeschool. If a parent denies the challenges of that option, they haven't thought about it much. So all of us have a role to play in reaching the next generation. We can serve in grace kids, in grace students, in special ministries. We can invest because it matters. And it's never too soon to start, as the story of Timothy in his infancy shows. Children pick up on what we teach and what we read and what we show. Part of the uh, Yoder family folklore is the story of Cedric, not yet two years old, talking to himself. I remember it clearly as he was walking down the hallway in our little apartment in Germany. And he said over and over to himself, Meanie, don't say that. Be kind. Meanie, don't say that. Be kind. Evidently, he was repeating the dialogue that he had had with his mother just moments before. And he was taking it to heart, or at least to mind. He was reminding himself of what he had heard. And we were hoping, as we heard him say this, that it would stick. Incidentally, that's one of the reasons why music is so powerful, because it glues words to our hearts. It teaches us. We read a lot to our children when they were young, and we still read to them. Much less frequently, hoping that they're reading more and more on their own. One of our favorite and most memorable books was a book called Love You Forever. And it captures the possibility of investing in the next generation. It captures the cost and captures the return. And it shows us the temporary nature of these opportunities we have. We'll love you forever. But this life and these years give limited opportunities to show it. So show it well, and show it for the good of those who are meant to live for God. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The baby grew, he he grew and he grew and he grew, he grew until he was two years old and he ran all around the house, he pulled all the books off the shelves, he pulled all the food out of the refrigerator and he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed, and if he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The little boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old, and he never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to a zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, 
I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And that book goes on to chronicle the life of that young man who became a teenager and then a a young man and then a father and took on responsibilities and and had a career and, and had a family. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older, the story goes. One day she called up her son and said, you'd better come see me because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. When he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. She sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. But she couldn't finish because she was too old and sick. The son went to his mother. He picked her up and rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He sang this song, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy you'll be. When the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. Then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked, he sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Time passes by. We can't stay stuck in time. There's a next generation waiting for our love and our investment. Parenting calls us to connect our children with the ultimate parent in whom is life. Well, this winter we've looked at marriage and family. We've seen how true and how vital our cry is. Heaven help the home. Way back in January, we saw from Genesis 2 how God designed marriage for humanity's unending flourishing and for our ultimate fulfillment in Him. Back in January, in Genesis 3, we saw that the fall into sin introduces brokenness and blame shifting, which infects every part of our lives. At the end of January, we saw in Genesis 3 the consequences of the fall that strike us in our most personal and relational places. The first Sunday in February, we saw that God designed marriage to be a living portrait on earth to display the splendor of his plan from heaven, Ephesians chapter 5. In that same chapter, a week later, we saw that God designed marriage to function with complementary roles for the maturity of the couple, husband and wife, as they display his gospel. In the middle of the month, we saw from 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness is a high and holy calling, highlighting Christ and serving his gospel. On February 23rd, from that same chapter, we saw that sexual intimacy in marriage celebrates God's design and it undermines the devil's work in us. On March 1, we saw that God is the master at mending broken marriages. And from both 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, we saw that God can pick up the pieces of shattered lives. Last week on March 8th, we saw that God calls parents to shape children to respond to a perfect father and to navigate a fallen world. And this week we see that we are to sow and invest in a next generation of lives so that they might see the God who made them and respond to him with their lives. 
My prayer is that we, God's people, connected together at Grace Polaris Church, would show these things in the most personal, most most intimate spaces of our lives. And that our relationships, if we would let him, would show off his glory. I'm so glad to be part of God's handiwork together with you. And I want you, and I want for me, and I want for us, that we would succeed before God. May God be honored in our marriages and our families for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we offer ourselves up to you as individuals, as couples, as families, and as a local church. I pray that our desire would be to submit to you so that you can do your good and glorious work in us and that the testimony of our lives and our relationships would show the world a better way, a different way, and would show off a Savior who has rescued us from ourselves and can change us from the inside out so that we demonstrate what it means to serve the God who made us. Thank you for walking with us, and I pray that as we move into uncharted territory, into a future that we cannot determine and do not know, that we would let you work your way in us. Thank you that you are here and that your presence accompanies us. In Jesus' name, amen.